Hey everyone, it's Jonathan. I just wanted to jump in here real quick before the show begins proper to let you know that Chris and I had some weird audio issues around the 34-minute mark of our original recording that I couldn't reconcile and fix, so I had to re-record a bit of the uh, the summary for The Force Awakens. So if it sounds different, now you know why. Captain's logs. Han Solo. I'm Captain Millennium Falcon. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the Federation Starship, Enterprise. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. You're listening to Captain's Logs and Lightsabers, part of the Geek News Now podcast network. Hello. And welcome to episode three of Captain's Logs and Lightsabers. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, we are a show that covers both Star Trek and Star Wars. My name is Jonathan, and I'm one of your hosts for the show. Joining me each week is my friend, Chris. Hello, everybody. I'm, I'm very happy to be here today. Just to give you a little introduction into the beginning of our show, each episode begins with a rundown of the notable news stories for the week from both franchises. Then Jonathan and I will have a feature discussion on either an episode or movie from Star Trek or Star Wars. We then compare and contrast the two, discussing what we liked and didn't like. We end the discussion with attempting to choose our favorite. Move the ship out of the asteroid field so that we can send a clear transmission. Captain, incoming message. Come closer, I have good news. Let's get into the news. We don't have a whole lot to cover this week. Since we covered a lot of the notable news stories that occurred over the past few weeks in our Star Wars Podcast Day special release episode that was released this past Sunday. So the only real news story that we have is is unfortunately uh, another passing of a beloved luminary from Star Trek and, and film in general. At the age of 91... Christopher Plummer passed away this week. If you don't know Christopher Plummer's work, uh, he was Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music, which is perhaps one of his most notable roles. If you saw the recent Ryan Johnson movie Knives Out, he was Harold Thromby, the author that set off the murder mystery for the whole plot of that movie. But to Star Trek fans, uh, he is known and will forever be known as General Chang, the Shakespeare-loving Klingon general from star trek 6 the undiscovered country chris what do you uh, what do you remember most about general chang just as the ruthlessness of of who he is you know he, he was willing to conspire against his own chancellor his own people and commit murder of fellow klingons just to make sure that there was no peace with the federation of any type you know and it's that's that's can you just imagine the mentality that comes along with that? Is that you're willing to throw your own people under the bus? <laughs> right. It, it, it's just mind-boggling. Uh, but it, he was just a very deep character. The, the Shakespeare things really, just the fact that he knew all of the Shakespeare just made the character a lot more compelling. Uh, just, just, you know, just being motivated by human history, human literature, you would think that he would actually use some sort of Klingon literature or something, but I guess, hey, that's the way they wanted it, because I know Nick Meyer's a really big Shakespeare buff. Mm-hmm. So he made a very strong character, just just the motives that he had and, and just the interactions that he had with Kirk were, were they, they basically, in a way, are the same kind of person, only one, like he said, in space, all, all warriors are cold warriors. Uh, and you can see a lot of the coldness in Kirk throughout the movie. Just the fact that he was angry about the Klingons, but the, in the peace treaty that was supposed to be coming from Praxis exploding. So, they, like I said, basically he and Kirk were the, were the same people. The only thing is, is that Kirk didn't allow his anger to actually influence himself to the point where he he could have sided with Admiral Cartwright and the Starfleet officers that wanted that wanted to sabotage the peace treaty as well, but he didn't. So he never got as even though he was cold about. The, the peace treaty that was going to happen, he never allowed that to actually lead to some sort of murder, where Chang and several others did. So that was really the only major difference, is that Kirk had that morality there where Chang, he didn't. He was fine with killing his own brethren. 
Mm-hmm. What, what about you? What were your thoughts on the general chain character? Uh, I mean, I I just I love all the connections between you know Chang the character and Christopher Plummer the actor. How he you know of course Christopher Plummer was also notable as a, a stage actor uh, and has had portrayed many roles in Shakespearean productions. I, I think his most notable and maybe his favorite role was Hamlet. So. I, I just love how he was able to, you know, through the script and through his own experience with Shakespeare, he was able to bring so much to that character. Sure. And, and there was actually definitely in terms of interaction between William Shatner and Christopher Plummer, they definitely had good chemistry together. They played off of each other very well. And if I remember correctly, they did some work together in the theater in the past. Can't remember. I thought they did something together. Can't remember if it was theater, what or movies, whatever. But there was something. They knew each other from something. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. uh, yeah. It, my my memory of that is fuzzy at best. But I'm sure you're right because you always you always have a very good grasp on on details like that, Chris. So I, I'm sure if anybody listening wants to chime in and, and reach out to us on Twitter and let us know if William Shatner and Christopher Plummer did appear together in something else prior to Star Trek Six, please let us know. Yes, please, because it's I I thought for sure that there was, but I could be thinking I could be thinking incorrectly. So, but I mean, I just had this feeling that they they knew each other before. But this, I wish it. The, the sad thing about somebody dying is you don't get time to really think back on all of those details. So I didn't get to look. <laughs> so, right. Right. Yeah. So yes, please clarify anybody if you know the answer for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, like I said, that's uh, there's not very much to cover news-wise since we just had an episode release a few days ago. So uh, we're going to move on to. What's going to be a new segment on the show, whether it'll be every episode or every other episode, it's hard to say, but we are going to uh, pick a ship from either Star Trek or Star Wars to feature as our ship of the week. So for our first ship of the week, I'm going to let Chris take it away. This first ship of the week is going to be about good old NX-01 Enterprise. So we're going to kind of start from the Enterprise lineage here and keep moving. In 2119, approximately 32 years before launch, Zephram Cochran and Henry Archer decided that they were going to work on a Warp 5 engine. So they established the Warp 5 complex in Bozeman, Montana. This led, as the years went on, to the NX project where they were trying to find the first engine to reach Warp 2. That eventually ended up succeeding thanks to Captain Archer and Captain A.G. Robinson. They weren't captains at the time, but they became captains. Enterprise was ready to launch in the year 2151. The captain considerations at the time were Jonathan Archer, the person who became Admiral Gardner, and then A.G. Robinson, but Archer won out. So the composition of the ship at the time of launch, Enterprise had a started with a, a crew total of 83 crew members and then added two aliens. Obviously, Subcommander T'Pol was the Vulcan science officer slash first officer slash Vulcan observer. And then you had Dr. Phlox, who was the Denobulan, who came on board as chief medical officer. One third of Enterprise's crew at the beginning was female. What was interesting about Enterprise is it was very it was incomplete at the time of launch because of Clang being found in Broken Bow. They had a, an Enterprise basically offering to take Clang home to the Klingon homeworld. They upped the launch by three weeks, and so as a result, the ship wasn't fully complete. They only had certain things that that were able to be used at the time. They had they had a grappler. They had a transporter, which was the first ship, was basically approved for transporter usage with biomatter at the time. They also had spatial torpedoes, but the phase cannons didn't get put into the ship until later on in their mission during their first year. Uh, The ship also had no defense shields at the time. It had hull plating. So Enterprise, again, launched three weeks early due to returning Clang back to Kronos. And so they started their, their journey, whether the Vulcans liked it or not. Their first year, there were several m- memorable missions. In addition to first contact with the Klingon Empire, they also had the very first male pregnancy happen with the Zerillians. Uh, Trip Tucker actually getting pregnant with a, turned out to not be his baby, but he was the first human to get pregnant that was male. 
There was also exposure of the Vulcan military installation at the Pajem Sanctuary, which led to the Andorians actually bombing the Pajem Sanctuary. There was also Enterprise rescuing the Klingon Raptor-class scout vessel from the atmosphere of a gas giant. There was the first Starfleet visit to the planet Risa. And their first year ended with the destruction of the Paragon colony, uh, which turned out to be the Sulaban who actually set that up. But they staged it to make it look like it was Enterprise's fault. The beginning of year two, that ended up being taken care of. What happened with the Paragon colony was it ended up canceling Enterprise's mission by Starfleet. But because they were able to clear their names, the mission was reinstated. So they had some very interesting, memorable missions in the second year. They had first contact with the Romulan Star Empire when they ran into the Romulan minefield by mistake. After the minefield explosion, they ended up finding an automated repair station, which kind of had basically a sentient computer. And it actually was being fueled by the bodies and the energy of other humanoid beings. So they destroyed the repair station, but it seemed to end up repairing itself. They never experienced that again, but if you go into the Enterprise relaunch novels, they do start, they pick up with that story arc. There was also the, the story arc with Archer and the Klingons. So that basically started where Enterprise helped some refugees from a Klingon annexed colony. The, they ended up encountering the IKS Bortos with Captain Doros. And what happened was is they ended up uh, in a fight, a firefight. Um, basically what it did was is it humiliated Doros when he got defeated. Captain Doros actually gave false testimony at Archer's trial. As a result, he was sent to Rorapente to serve punishment, but he was rescued by Lieutenant Reed. So that ended up leading to basically there was a bounty on Archer's head for the later part of the second season. Um, and that finally culminated in March of 2153 uh, with the Zindi attack on Earth. Enterprise was returned home, um, and it was retrofitted into a warship. And that's where it got its uh, torpedoes replaced with photonic torpedoes, and its hull plating was significantly enhanced. Another very interesting addition they made to the ship as it was going into this mission was the military assault command operations, or MAKOs, were added to the ship. Basically, this was the 10-month mission for them to find the Zindi weapon and to save Earth. Finally, after 10 months of searching, they found and destroyed the weapon. Enterprise was nearly destroyed during the, during the last parts of, of this mission. By the time Enterprise came home, 27 crew members had been lost during the Zindi mission. They also had several other memorable missions that happened. For example, they were able to find the Vulcan vessel Salea. Then they found that the crew had gone mad and that they were unable to be salvaged. Commander Tucker at one point was severely injured. And in order to save him, they actually created a clone and they named him Sim. And then there was a debate about whether or not Sim should actually be executed and sacrifice to save Tucker, or should, Tucker should die and Sim should be allowed to survive. Also, they found a colony of humans, which was very interesting, and they, it was kind of a Wild West kind of planet that they had created for themselves. Archer and Paul also traveled to the city of Detroit in the year 2004 to stop a biological weapon being developed by Zindi reptilians. And also, the Andorians were stopped as they were trying to steal the Zindi prototype weapon to take back with and finally, they encountered an alternate Enterprise that got sent back 117 years into the past and basically became a generational ship to kind of help Enterprise when they finally met up with them in the Expanse. Finally, the fourth year, the Enterprise finally re returns home from the Expanse, gets an extensive refit. Memorable missions during this time were the Augment Crisis with Dr. Eric Sung and the Augment individuals from the eugenics wars from the 20th century. Also, they were involved in the fall of the Vulcan High Command. They were active and very instrumental in the Earth, Vulcan, Andor, and Teller uniting to combat the Romulan drone ship, which ultimately led to the four species working toward, the at the time, the Coalition of Planets. And they also were instrumental in preventing Terra Prime from hijacking the Verderon array on Mars. 
So, unfortunately, Enterprise was canceled at the end of its fourth year. So, we didn't really get to see much of what ended up happening. I'm sure that it served during the Earth-Romulan Wars, which probably would have been seen in Seasons 5, 6, and 7. It's a shame we didn't get to see that happen. It made first contact with approximately 35 different species in its history, including the Andorians, Klingons, the Cretacens, Orions, Rhysians, Romulans, the Malorians, the Sulaban, the Tandarans, Skagarans, the Zindi, and the Zerillians. But basically, Enterprise served faithfully from Earth Starfleet into the United Federation of Planets and served for 10 years and was finally retired in the year 2161 as the Federation was created. It was placed in a Federation museum, which by the time of the 24th century was still there and people were still able to visit at that time. I think it's a wonderful ship. What I have always loved about it, I love it. It's just a simple ship. It's basically a saucer section with engines. And for goodness sakes, it was a pretty tough little ship getting beat down by the Zindi insectoids and the reptilians at Azadi Prime, and it still survived. You know, that onslaught. A lot of other ships were destroyed with a lot less. So it was a great little ship, and it was fun doing a lot of research for our little vessel. Jonathan, what about you? What did you think about Enterprise? Oh, man. Uh, I, I mean, I know we had talked in our first yeah. episode you know, with, uh, with Enterprise that when it was first on the air, I really didn't connect with the show. Uh, but I recently, within the last couple of years, had a rewatch. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed the show. I really came to love it for, you know, for everything that it accomplished. However, the episode with Trip getting pregnant still gives me... Sh- <laughs> I was so not. You know what? The, that episode has got some of the best one-liners from Picard. <laughs> <laughs> sticking your fingers where they shouldn't belong, and, and watching Scott Bakula in the background cracking up. You know what was going on? It was just that was that was a highlight. For that. Yeah, one one of the few. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting episode, absolutely. I'll tell you what, though, you know, I, I've loved Enterprise when it when it first started. I still love it to this day. It certainly did not get the series finale that it deserved. It's a shame that no. they were guest stars in their own show, and they deserve better than that. I agree, and unfortunately, it it reeks of just having been thrown together because they knew the show was coming to an end and it would not get to finish exactly. its its mission. They should have had a two a two parter where they could have made it to exactly one hundred episodes even and showed the beginning of the birth of the Federation. That would have been the Valentine that Brandon Braga said that these are the voyages were was supposed to be. You know, to see that birth. And then one last thing before we move on about Enterprise is the ending shot. That is one thing I love about These Are the Voyages at the end is the three Enterprise captains giving them the Star Trek beginning monologue. And after Archer says to boldly go where no man has gone before and the music playing and watching Enterprise flying past the camera, I'm I'm a big baby. I choke up every time I watch it. I do. It's just something, there's something about that ship that, and just, you know, the fact that the show got cheated out of a long, successful run every time it yeah. chokes me up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There were, I mean, for for all of the memorable missions that the that the Enterprise NX-01 went on, there aren't nearly as many moments that make you go, ugh. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, it, overall, it was a solid show. Yeah. And, and 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 I agree. You know, the ship took a, a, a hell of a beating sometimes, and but a, you know a lot of that, and it, it always comes down to the crew that mans her, exactly. that that keeps the ship together. Mm-hmm. And Enterprise had one hell of a crew, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for putting all that research together for us, Chris. I, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, definitely was a, a great segment, and I think I I know I'm a, I, I'm personally a fan of it. So we're going to continue it, and we'll let you know in a future episode what the next featured ship is going to be. Don't get technical with me. Logic is the beginning of wisdom, Polaris, not the end. A Jedi uses the Force for knowledge and defense. 
Without further ado, we're going to go into our feature discussion for episode three of Captain's Logs and Lightsabers. And we are going to talk about two films that essentially two films that relaunch their respective franchises. And what we're talking about is the Star Trek 2009 feature film starring Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, and Carl Urban, among others. And we're going to talk about Star Wars The Force Awakens. Both films brought back their respective franchises from what everybody thought was going to be their grave. And we're uh, we're both looking forward to talking about this. Well, let's uh, let's start with Star Trek 2009. Chris, do you want to give us a quick synopsis of this film? The movie begins with the Romulan mining ship coming through a black hole and it immediately attacks, attacks a ship which is destroyed and it kills the father of Captain Kirk at the time of his birth. So it alters from, from the beginning moments history because it was, even though it was never firmly established in the original series, it was, it, it was never said that his father had been killed. So any, anyway, so this Roman ship comes through, kills, destroys the Kelvin and then we jump ahead into the future where Kirk is kind of like, he's basically a bad boy. He has no direction in life. He gets into a fight in a bar, sees Captain Pike, who is, who's really stunned that this is the, what has become of George Kirk's son, kind of encourages him to do better. Um, Kirk ends up going and seeing the Enterprise being built on Earth, and then he decides to enlist in Starfleet. Three years later, the Narada is goes to Vulcan and is sending a drill down to and sending some sort of energy down into the planet. So at this point, the Enterprise's crew is assembled. There's a fleet that gets sent to Vulcan. It's destroyed, except for the Enterprise. It turns out that Nero, who is the renegade Romulan, has decided he's going to destroy all Vulcan by putting a black hole in the middle of the planet. He succeeds. Um, Kirk then ends up getting jettisoned off the ship because he's basically being um, insubordinate. He's sent to Delta Vega where he encounters Spock from the original timeline. And basically what he said was is that in the time of the next generation, basically there was a supernova that was created and it was attempted to be – was, they were trying to stop it by using something called red matter, but they were too late and the supernova destroyed Romulus. Nero blamed the Federation and, and Spock for it, and so they, when they went back in time, he decided he was going to punish Vulcan by destroying Vulcan itself, which, which he ended up doing. Kirk ends up getting sent back on board the Enterprise, ends up battling Nero, and he gets defeated by his own black or red matter weapon. Kirk basically comes back as a hero because they saved Earth from suffering Vulcan's fate. And Kirk gets promoted from cadet to captain in an instant. <laughs> so that is basically it. What's interesting about this movie is it changes everything from the very beginning and sets up an all-new timeline or an alternate reality. So that's basically what was unique about the, this movie is that it set up a whole new sequence of events. So now, what do you think about that, Jonathan? Right. I, I mean, I like how the movie ends up ultimately acknowledging that everything that happened created a separate timeline so that both the 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 film and the original series and the films that came bef as part of the original series timeline can still exist yes. with you know a alongside each other and that you know it, it was never meant to replace one with the other so i i like how we get some different characterizations for you know, for our main characters that we grew up, you know, that you and I grew up with and that we loved. Yeah, I agree. I like how at the very beginning we get that shot of the USS Kelvin. You know, the first thing that we see is a Starfleet vessel. It's that iconic design of the Starfleet vessels that have come before it. So you immediately know as a Star Trek fan, okay, this is a Star Trek movie. I know, you know, I know what I'm getting myself into. Right. I like how we got to see, uh, as as George Kirk, we got to see Chris Hemsworth before, you know, he became all manly and, and took on the, the, the hammer of Thor. 
<laughs> yep, uh, definitely, definitely not the same Chris Hemsworth that we know and love now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, totally different person. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, you know, within you know, once we get once we start to get Kirk's background, uh, I like how we get that. You know, we see the rebellious Kirk, and then immediately after we see Kirk's childhood, we see how stoic and austere that the upbringing of Spock was on Vulcan. Yeah, it's it's a great contrast of the two distinct personalities that, of course, you know we know throughout the course of the movie are going to clash. Right. Exactly. So, so and going back to what you were saying about seeing kind of Spock suffering and everything, that's where we see kind of like a perfect blending of the old stuff with Star Trek and the new things that they were trying to bring into it. Yes, from the get go, they started it where Kirk's whole story was immediately changed right at the very beginning. But we actually got to see the stuff that they talked about in the original series regarding Spock, about the bullying and, and feeling mm-hmm. divided between the two worlds. I think, yeah, so I, I think we that we got a nice blending of kind of bringing some of the lore from Star Trek into it, but also creating some new lore at the same time. I also like that, that we, like you said, that we have a kind of a difference. We have a similarity, but also a difference with the, the, the characters. Especially, for example, the relationship with Spock and Uhura. That was certainly something that was never explored. The only, I think the real reason they, the, the producer said that they kind of went that route is it was kind of implied that they could have had a relationship. If you go back to, I think it's the Man Trap um, from the very first season of the original series, Uhura is kind of like, not necessarily being flirty, but this kind of, I guess, romantic in, in the way she talks about like uh, the the moon on Earth, and asked Spock if there was what was Vulcan like on a lazy or hazy evening with a full moon, and and Spock said Vulcan has no moon, Miss Aurora, and she says I'm not surprised, Mister Spock. So I think that's the area where they kind of made it look like there was some sort of possible romance that could have happened. So it was a little like I think for newer Star Trek fans, it was no big deal. For me, when I saw it, it was kind of like, huh. You know, this yeah, you know, they they kind of are like hooking up with each other. It was it was odd, but Zoe Saldana and Zachary Quinto handled that relationship in a very touching way, and it felt organic, and it really contributed something to the story, and contributed something to this new timeline that we actually got to see play out in three movies, which was really interesting. Yeah, and and I I personally I don't have any issues with the romance between Uhura and, and Spock. I, I just I. I don't know if I'm necessarily a fan of how they were ultimately brought together, that it was, it was kind of the, I don't know. It seems like the death of Amanda was kind of hap, you know, haphazardly done. Yeah. I, it was just so quick and so random. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not a fan of that part, but I, you know, again, I, I, I do acknowledge how it was important for the relationship to develop between Spock and Uhura. Sure. Absolutely. And it was a very interesting way of seeing Kirk and Spock forming their friendship, too, basically out of a complete disrespect for each other. And one thing I've also noticed about Zachary Quinto's Spock is he's a lot more human, a lot more emotional than Leonard Nimoy's sure. Spock. And you know, we saw that it continue to flow through into darkness and into beyond. You know, it's just, that's just the different take of Spock in this timeline. But the original Spock, Leonard Nimoy... He didn't have to deal with the death of his mother and have to deal with the death of his entire race, basically. You know, so no wonder this this alternate Spock has, has become so emotional because he's on a different path than than the other one was. But it was it's good to have seen Kirk and Spock kind of come together through through different obstacles and pain and and loss, and that that friendship finally started to develop the way it was supposed to. And then of course you got Doctor McCoy nipping at Spock constantly which is you gotta have that right right of course oh absolutely yeah yeah i mean yeah i mean he just got the mannerisms right he even though the voice didn't sound exactly like the forest kelly they kind of had the same inflections going on they, they just they did a really nice job with with casting this movie and um uh, Zoe Saldana is probably my favorite out of all of the 
the actors. I think she did a really she brought a difference to a horror. She got brought some more attitude in mm-hmm. than Michelle Nichols ever really played into the role, except for maybe in Star Trek Three when she put Mister Adventure into the closet. You know, but in in this case, there was just something fiery about Zoe Saldana. Actually, having Uhura telling Kirk off numerous times <laughs> that was a very Oh yeah, absolutely. That was a great dynamic between the two of them, for sure. Exactly. Um, Nero as a villain, I thought it was kind of cardboard. It's starting to get to the point now with with villains, and, and Nero was no exception, where they're basically having this "I want revenge against the Federation" thing going on. I just didn't think that he was a very interesting person. He was played great by Eric. Is it Eric Ben? I believe it, it, his name was. And, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, he did a good job. He brought a lot of, I mean, you felt the anger and anguish that he had about losing his pregnant wife and losing his entire race, you know. But I, I guess thinking back on it, like, just why would I? What would it solve to to destroy Vulcan and destroy the Federation? I I I don't I don't know. I just it didn't it just like seems weak to me. I, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, he was he was very. Nero was very one note and you know his yeah. attempt for retribution against Vulcan and specifically against Spock for what he you know ultimately what Spock's role in the destruction of Romulus was right it, again it, it was it felt very one note it was it was very singular minded and it, it ultimately of course led to his failure exactly Exactly. Yeah, I've had people kind of say that I've heard things about Nero being kind of like Shinzon from Star Trek Nemesis, kind of just like one note, very kind of flat, not very interesting. But see, to me, Shinzon was a much more interesting character because he actually he was doing what he was doing because he didn't want to be an echo of Picard. He wanted to be something unique, something different. That's kind of that made a little bit more sense to me as me being an identical twin. Kind of having that feeling of I can't, I don't want, I don't want to be the echo. I want, I want to be unique. I want to be remembered for something. Where Nero was just kind of like, what was his? I mean, what was his after he would destroy Vulcan and then he would destroy Earth? What was he going to do next? Where was he going to go? He would have no purpose to live. Nothing. Right. You know, right. That's why there was no nothing. It would have been more interesting if Nero came back and said, okay. I'm going to work with you guys here. Hundred years now, a hundred years from now, there's going to be this supernova that's going to destroy Romulus. Why don't we start working on it now and, and get a plan to save the Romulan people? And we have a century to do it. That would have made mm-hmm. more sense for him to do that rather than just kill people and then be like, "Well, that's it. Now what do I do?" It, it, right. Yeah. So that that's just my whole thing with Nero. But overall, the, I really enjoy the movie. Um, my favorite memory of this movie was I went to see it on opening day with my twin brother Matt. Um, we actually went to the ten o'clock showing and actually saw it. And and uh, he was home from the military at the time, so we had a really nice night together. Kind of dropped my wife off at home. We also at Walmart that night. I bought the Spock action figure, and he bought the Playmates toys ship. I remember going to work at Western Psych the next day being completely exhausted, but it was so worth going and just seeing, just having Star Trek back was, was really exciting. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, I, I have very similar experiences, you know, seeing uh, Star Wars movies right. the night of release or rather the night before release, you know, Kylie and I did several midnight releases for, uh, Star Wars movies, you know, we we saw episode two, episode three at midnight. It's, it's a shame that that midnight showings really aren't a thing anymore after the senseless violence in Aurora, Colorado, after that shooting. So, but, you know, speak that you know what those midnight showings are something that's going to be special for you guys with those Star Wars movies. So right. Actually, a good segue into talking about uh, the Force Awakens and how that relaunched the Star Wars franchise. So. You're our resident Star Wars expert, so why don't you take that one away and give us synopsis. We begin Star Wars The Force Awakens, as we do all previous Skywalker Saga movies, with the Star Wars logo and opening fanfare accompanying our text crawl. Luke Skywalker has vanished. In his absence, the sinister First Order has risen from the ashes of the Empire and will not rest until Skywalker, The Last Jedi, has been destroyed. 
With the support of the Republic, General Leia Organa leads a brave resistance. She is desperate to find her brother Luke and gain his help in restoring peace and justice to the galaxy. Leia has sent her most daring pilot on a secret mission to Jakku, where an old ally has discovered a clue to Luke's whereabouts. Our camera then pans down to show a very large ship, similar in, in appearance to an Imperial Star Destroyer in orbit over this planet of Jakku. We meet Poe Dameron, BB-8, and this ally of General Leia who hands Poe a bag containing what we later find out is a piece of map that will lead to the location of Luke Skywalker. The First Order lands a shuttle on the surface of the planet, lowering the ramp to reveal a squad of incredibly efficient stormtroopers who start to mercilessly kill the residents of this settlement on Jakku. We meet Kylo Ren, appearing in a cape and mask reminiscent of Darth Vader from the original trilogy. Instead of escaping with the map piece, Poe places this map piece inside of BB-8 and orders him to get it back to the Resistance base. Uh, Poe Dameron attempts to intervene in the village attack, and he fires on Kylo Ren. But Kylo Ren is incredibly powerful in the Force and is able to stop and freeze Poe's blaster bolt in mid-air and ultimately is able to capture Poe. We again see the ruthlessness of these stormtroopers as they execute the prisoners from the settlement, except for one stormtrooper who does refuse to fire upon them. We then get to meet one of our other main characters of this trilogy, Rey, a teenager who is scavenging parts from downed Imperial craft on the surface of Jakku, including a Star Destroyer. It's evident that some sort of major battle has taken place here, and it looks like the the Empire lost. She's been on the planet for what seems like many years as we see that she has tally marks all over the wall of her shelter, which is a hollowed-out AT-AT Imperial Walker. She's able to rescue BB-8 from another scavenger, and despite race complaints, BB-8 follows her home. Um... On the First Order Destroyer, we meet the Stormtrooper who refused to fire on the prisoners. He's called FN-2187. He defies his commanding officer's orders, and instead, he's going to assist Poe Dameron escape from the Star Destroyer so that Finn, as he later comes to be known, can escape from the First Order as well. The Poe and Finn are able to steal a TIE fighter, escape from the Star Destroyer, and crash land on the surface of Jakku. Finn is able to escape the crash, but it doesn't appear that Poe is going to be as lucky as we see the TIE fighter sink into the sand, with Poe seemingly still in the pilot seat. Finn eventually finds his way to the village where Ray is also selling parts to an alien named Unkar Plutt, who happens to be portrayed by Scotty himself from Star Trek 2009, Simon Pegg. Ray and Finn notice that stormtroopers in the village, and they begin to run out of the settlement. Um, they're escaping, uh, rather, they're trying to get off the planet, and they eventually escape in what Ray calls a uh, piece of garbage, which is revealed to be the Millennium Falcon. Eventually, they're intercepted by a ship, and they get caught in its tractor beam. Finn thinks that the First Order has recaptured them, but in reality, it's Han Solo and Chewbacca. Chewie, we're home, says Han, as they board the Falcon. Uh, some misadventures in true Han Solo style with some creatures named Raptors occur, and uh, the four heroes are able to escape the freighter on board the Millennium Falcon, and they then make their way to Takadana and Maz Kanata's castle. Rafe, while at the castle, Rafe feels a mysterious call to the lower floors of the castle and is able to, uh, well, rather, she happens upon Luke Skywalker's lightsaber, and we see her experience a forced flashback of several events of the past movies, including a new scene where Luke Skywalker and R2-D2 are overlooking a fiery landscape. The First Order has been able to turn 
an entire planet into a weapon that is capable of not just destroying a planet like the Death Star could, but is able to send planet-destroying missiles through hyperspace to destroy an entire system. The New Republic is their initial target, and uh, in an instant, the, the seat of government in the galaxy is just gone. Uh, eventually, Han, Finn, BB-8, and Chewie are able to escape from Takodana in the midst of a battle with the First Order. Unfortunately, the First Order captures Rey and is able to take her to Starkiller Base. Han and company make it to the Resistance Base, where we find out that Poe Dameron did indeed survive the crash and is alive and well on the, at the Resistance Base, and he's going to be leading the fighter assault against the base. Meanwhile, a ground infiltration team made up of Han, Chewie, and Finn are able to land on the surface of Starkiller Base, and they take out its defenses and, in the, and also rescue Rey in the process. Han sees Kylo Ren, and he walks out onto a catwalk to confront his son, Ben. They, they exchange words in, uh, in possibly one of the most heartbreaking moments of this entire trilogy. Kylo Ren activates his lightsaber, and it goes through Han's chest, and Han falls to his death off of the catwalk. Eventually, Rey, Finn, and Kylo Ren are destined to have a showdown in the snow while the fighter assault is taking out the critical infrastructure of Starkiller Base. They, the assault causes the planet to start to break apart and become unstable. Uh, Finn wields the, the Luke's lightsaber, and while he initially does fairly well against Kylo Ren... He loses the, the battle as he is slashed across the face and he falls down into the snow. Ray is able to use the Force to summon Luke's lightsaber to her hand, despite Kylo Ren attempting to do the same exact thing. And she's able to get in a crippling slash along Kylo Ren's face and shoulder. She locates Finn in the snow and with Chewie's help is able to get him aboard the Falcon and they escape the planet together with Chewie before it explodes in a fiery blast. I've been talking for a while. Let's, uh, I'm going to hand it over to Chris, and he can kind of give you his thoughts on, on Star Wars The Force Awakens, and we'll go from there. Well, I know a lot of people probably don't agree with me, but I think it was the best of the sequel trilogy. A lot of people said that it was too similar to the original Star Wars movie, and yes, there's a parallel in the stories, where you have Ray and Luke both on desert planets. Um, they encounter these droids that ha have something secretive that the, either the Empire or then the First Order were going after. You had a bit of a cantina scene going on. Everybody kind of came together as the movie progressed. But it felt like Star Wars to me. You know, the, the, the one thing about the prequels is they, they, they were, I thought they were excellent, but they almost felt like cartoons to some degree because there was so much cgi in them right from the get-go i remember watching in the theater just looking at the just basic that the, there was a lot less cgi uh, or at least it was a lot less noticeable and just seeing some of the practical stuff that they did really that made me it felt like the original star wars trilogy to me in that regard um even down to like the, the puppets and, and the creatures and and the, just the you know, people in costumes for the droids. It, it just it felt genuine to that era. Um, I really enjoyed having Han Solo come back and seeing that he and Chewbacca were still together. One, I also in, enjoyed kind of learning that Han and Leia kind of, sem, I guess, split up. I don't know if they, like, divorced or if they just went their own separate ways and stayed married or... Or what? But uh, yeah. learning that they had had a son together, that he was trained by Luke, kind of getting an understanding of Luke actually, he kind of learning that he proceeded with being a Jedi and, and tried to grow the order, but then it kind of it blew up in his face and he got betrayed by Kylo Ren. Um, and then he just disappeared. That that made for a very interesting mystery. What Where did Luke Skywalker go? And it actually, what also was really interesting to me about the movie is that the Jedi, Luke, the Force, by that point, 30 years after Return of the Jedi, they were basically considered myth. 
Whereas just, you know, two generations earlier, you had 10,000 Jedi, you know, fighting to save the galaxy. So just kind of seeing that they've kind of almost faded into oblivion uh, was a very interesting story detail. Um, learning one thing that I also really liked were that the, the movie opened up with some really interesting questions. First of all, who was Snoke? You know, where did he come from? You know, it, obviously he was force sensitive and he was training Kylo Ren, but how did he get involved with the first order? How was he involved with any of the past situations that happened? Maybe with Palpatine, maybe with the empire. There was, there was this big question mark. And I remember at the end of the movie and for two years after saying, I want to know more about Snoke. He was, it was very interesting. And it's a shame that he, his story got cut short in the last Jedi. Um, see, what else did I like about that? This movie? Um, I love seeing Leia in even more authority than she was in the uh, rebellion. Now she's le she's a general leading the resistance. Uh, that I love very much. Wait, wait. I'm sorry, Chris. Uh, I'm sorry. I can't. I can't. I can't. <laughs> I don't know if you meant to do it, but how you said that his story was cut short in the Last Jedi was that a, was that meant to be a pun? No. <laughs> Sir, well played. Yeah, and it was done accidentally. <laughs> I was so excited to learn more about that character, and then they killed him off. But anyway, but that was something I loved about it. And then seeing Leia, have, she's grown in, in intensity and authority. Now she's this big leader of the resistance. You know, it, it just... I just, I loved seeing Leia grow. Actually, to be honest with you, I loved Leia in the sequel trilogy more than anything. I just, I loved seeing Carrie Fisher back in that role and the strength that she brought to it. And, and just the, the fact that everybody rallied around her. And, and, and just, you know, she was basically, I don't know how to word it. She was just revered, basically, by, by the people under her command. You know, she could do no wrong, and, and, and rightly so. Um, but overall, I, what I really loved is that it, it felt like a continuation of the original trilogy. And I think that's where, and we'll get into that with the comparing and the contrasting part of the two movies, but it felt like it was part of that world. It was an official continuation of what had come before. And that was always very exciting to me. And even though we didn't really see a lot of the original characters necessarily interacting, you probably saw more of it in this movie than in the other two sequels. It's one movie that I, I really, really love that, that brings back, I think, the fun of Star Wars. So what about you? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. The Force Awakens was just overall just a, a, a fun movie from start to finish. Yeah, it has its critics. Yeah, there's some, you know, plenty of criticisms how it is too similar to A New Hope and that it just basically retreads, you know, what, what Episode Four did back in 1977. But the thing is, that's, that is... That is what Star Wars is about. I mean, we the, the the it's called Star Wars, so we know there's going to be a a huge conflict of some sort between two warring factions. Uh, you know, it, it's the, the title gives it away. So you know, we like to you know you know as fans of the Legends continuity, there are plenty of stories told after the Rebel Alliance, which then became the New Republic. You know, after their victory over the Empire, there were there were stories of, you know, Luke Skywalker starting a a new Jedi Academy and training the future Jedi. You know, in in, you know, to to carry on the legacy of the Jedi, and there's you know, and of course, those of you that are fans of Legends, you know, and and still you know and, and like to enjoy those those books and novels and and everything. You know, it's it's still there for you to enjoy. It's still there for you to, you know, to pick up and read as many times as you want to. You know, all the fans of this Legends continuity, and we're expecting to see these stories that they they read about come to life on the screen. 
it's so hard to accomplish something like that because there is just so much material in Legends and so much of it overlapped in a way that didn't make sense. And again, those stories are fantastic. I've read many of them myself. It's just, it was a little messy and a little hard to keep straight. So, you know, this was essentially a, you know, it's you know the the idea was to reboot it and tell a definitive story of what happened after the fall of the empire and unfortunately you know while the new republic was doing i assume everything that it could to govern the galaxy fairly there are so many planets in the star wars galaxy that things can happen that that just completely miss the watchful eyes of the new republic and that of course that's how the first order was able to rise to power and actually we find out in uh in one of the new canon novels bloodline by claudia gray that there were many senators and representatives within the new republic who actually were helping to fund the first order now little did they know who truly was behind the first order which you know, as we in in a future episode, I I, I no doubt expect that we will uh, actually. If what I'd like to do is to continue this discussion, you know, where we're we're doing Star Trek O Nine and The Force Awakens, then we move on to uh, Star Trek Into Darkness and compare that with The Last Jedi and so on and so forth. I think it would make a pretty cool series of episodes, sure. but without giving too much away you know i i think that you know this this uh the, you know again that we f- what we found out ultimately in the rise of skywalker who was behind the first order to begin with you know i i, I kind of like the that we sort of got a, an inclination but not really in the force awakens of what was to come yes i i agree with you I one of my one of my favorite things one you know that one of the things that I noticed this time on this watch through of the Force Awakens was I love how they acknowledged that the Millennium Falcon is not an easy ship to fly and you know and and how Rey and Finn were having some difficulty well Rey specifically because she was the pilot how she had some difficulty figuring out all of the controls and all of the modifications that Han made it just makes Han and Chewie that much more special you know, because they are, they were able to treat, you know, to the way they were able to fly that ship was incredible. And, and the battles that it had seen were phenomenal. Right. You know, one thing I really liked about the, For- the force awakens is it seemed to bring back a lot of nostalgia for people. Definitely. Obviously seeing their fa- their favorite classic characters back on screen was, a, was a big experience for a lot of people. I know I have a cousin that actually went to the movies and saw the, I guess the first trailer when it first came out. And he actually started crying when he saw Han Solo and Chewbacca come on board the Falcon and say, Chewie, we're home. It just brought him back to all these memories of when he was growing up and he teared up, uh, we were told. And I think that that's what the force awakens really does is it helps bring back a lot of nostalgia. For example, just seeing the millennium Falcon again, and it's been re- lovingly recreated. You know, it, it's not, it wasn't modified for a new generation. It wasn't now all, all of a sudden, now we got all this new technology. We can make all these new, do whatever we want. You know, they kept it the way it looked. And I think that's what really helped make it special in that movie for fans. Um, I don't know about you, but I know that when Harrison Ford comes on, on to, or as Han Solo comes on to the, the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, he's smiling. I always smile with them every single time because you can feel, you know, it's almost like, wow, you know, it's come full circle. And that's what really makes, I think, The Force Awakens so special. So even though people say that it's a a big copy of of A New Hope, I think it's got some really good feel-good moments in it that I think a lot of fans felt very special with. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, of course, you know, the, the idea behind our show is to compare and contrast the two. We've talked, you know, what we like, what we didn't like about Star Trek 09 and, and Star Wars The Force Awakens. Uh, what connections did you see? What made the two films feel connected to each other in your eyes? I think just the simple fact that they relaunched their prospective brands, but they just did it in different ways. 
Whereas um, The Fourth Awakens, basically, it kept the original formula, kept the original story, kept the original continuity, and, and brought new fans in, in addition to trying to satisfy the past fans. I think, I think that was a comparison in itself, was both movies actually tried to bring old and new fans in, but they just did it differently. Um, but Star Trek 09 did it where they basically, they honored what came before, but created their whole, a whole new world. And then it kind of freed them with, from basic canon and allowed them to kind of explore new things or new themes as, as time went on with, with that trilogy. Um, but that's what I like. More. I think, be honest with you, I prefer The Force Awakens over Star Trek 09 in that regard, because it's not in The Force Awakens. It's not an alternate timeline. It's just a continuation of what came before. So mm-hmm. it's like a feel good kind of moment kind of thing. You like It's just something that you can kind of like clutch to and still feel that comfort where Star Trek 09 was, is now just kind of it's alternate. And that's kind of how I've been seeing Star Trek over the last number of years since this, that movie came out is I like it. I don't mind it. I enjoy the the, uh, the trilogy that came out for the Kelvin timeline, but it doesn't I don't feel that connection to it like I do with the, the, the all, all the other stuff that came before Star Trek 09. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Awakens, I feel that connection with the rest of the saga and I love it. Yeah. Um, I, I, one thing that I noticed and you can probably you might have picked up on this as well i noticed that the whether this is because they were both directed by jj abrams or whether it was an attempt to for uh, it seems like it was almost seems like it was an attempt for jj to make star trek seem more like star wars because you know jj was a huge star wars fan still is of course it's a huge star wars fan growing up I, I think when he took the reins of Star Trek 09, he attempted to make it feel more like Star Wars. Uh, the space battles in, in Star Trek 09 were very fast-paced, very frenetic, very much like Star Wars. Um, and I know that probably ticked off a few fans. Oh, How do you feel? I, You know what? I, I mean, they made it definitely more action-packed. And I think Star Trek, even though it's been action-packed, it's, it, functions, it functions a lot differently. Uh, than Star Wars, it, where it's more like of the mind. It's, I, I don't want to sound arrogant or anything, but it's more intellectual based, where you kind of question things and it makes you, it puts societal uh, issues into frames that a certain way for you to really think about things. So I think that might have been a little bit missing from Star Trek 09, where they, they went more the Star Wars route and really went for the action piece of it. Now, it Action is a lot of fun, so I enjoyed the, the action scenes in Star Trek 09, and it, it was like, whoa, like, look at this roller coaster that we're on. That's that's kind of my feeling on it. How about you? I mean, say what you will about how J.J. Abrams decided to take the direction of Star Trek 2009 and make it more you know make it more interesting to contemporary audiences while he's you know the the script uh and it was kurtzman and orsi right they wrote the script for 09 so and how you know basically jj abrams took the movie and made it more like star wars and made it more appealing to contemporary audiences but kurtzman and, and orsi were able to pull in those homages and pull in those references to you know, the original Star Trek and to, to rather to all the Star Trek that came before it. You know, I like how, was it on Delta Vega that he met, that Kirk met Scotty as well as Spock or was that somewhere else? Yes. No, you're right. It was on Delta Vega. I think he was sent there because something with Admiral Archer's prize beetle. Yes. You know exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that little homage. Of course, you know, the uh, the reference to Sulu's combat training as fencing. Yes. <laughs> oh, oh, I know one thing um, that I wanted to point out. The uh, at one point at one point on the Narada, Nero uses Centaurian slugs. And weren't those the same creatures that Khan used? Similar. They were similar, similar, not the same. OK. Yeah. Uh, they were the SETI eels in Star Trek 2. Okay, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Thanks for straightening that, that no, part no, out. No, no problem, no, no problem. I can see why you thought that, though, because they, they pretty much served a very similar purpose. Mm-hmm. 
also, also, I, I also like that you can see a little bit of J.J. Abrams' love of Star Wars in Star Trek 09. I, I believe in the Vulcan, um, in the graveyard of the ships, they actually, he actually put R2-D2 in as part of the debris field at one point. And also, if you look at the warp field, when the Enterprise is at warp, it looks a lot like when the Millennium Falcon or any of the other ships are in hyperspace. Right, right. You put a little, a few homages in, which was, and, and you know what, I have no problem with that, because they've done homages in the past before. If you watch Star Trek First Contact, during the, the uh, Battle of Sector 001, they put the Millennium Falcon in the fleet that was fighting the war. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not the first time that's happened. Um, but you're right, I never, I never, I don't think I really ever thought put the connection of J.J. Abrams doing both movies. I mean, I knew that he did, but I never really like thought to compare them. That was very interesting. Yeah, that's why I, you know, I really wanted to do this episode as, yeah. as kind of our follow-up to Kurosawa, because, yeah, just for that, I mean, obviously they both relaunched their franchises, but the fact that they were both directed by J.J. Abrams is kind of just icing on the cake. Right, right. Yeah. So basically, what do you think, which movie do you feel was the better relaunch? Uh, well, I mean, I certainly think that, you know, when we look at, when we look at both, you know, essentially the force awakens, you know, launched in 2015, it started off that new trilogy, which of course has led to, you know, the, uh, through Disney plus has led to getting star Wars on television for its first, you know, for its first debut on, on a small screen you know, in, in the Mandalorian, eventually, you know, the, the Star Trek Kelvin trilogy re, you know, launched Star Trek or sorry, uh, reinvigorated Star Trek on the small screen again, as you know, as well with, you know, with discovery and Picard and now strange new worlds and all the shows that are coming. And we know, of course, all the Star Wars shows that are coming to Disney plus, I think that there's so many parallels and what they were both able to do for their respective franchises is just incredible. But if I if I did have to pick one, I, I'm going to have to go with The Force Awakens. Not that I'm taking anything at all away from Star Trek 09, uh, because it was a fun movie. But the villain was just a little too one note, you know, like we discussed earlier. Uh, I think there was a lot more nuance and a lot more mystery behind Kylo Ren and and what was established in The Force Awakens for uh, Supreme Leader Snoke. Um, I thought was, you know, was wonderful. And I am absolutely a huge fan of Donald Gleason's portrayal of General Hux as kind of the, you know, leader of the military troops where, you know, Snoke and Kylo Ren were kind of the dark side component, had very similar vibes to what the Empire was and, and how there was, you know, there was that tension between Hux and Kylo Ren, much like there was that tension between Grand Moff Tarkin and Darth Vader in A New Hope. You're right, absolutely. And it's it just all it's all echoes the story beats and and the composition of the First Order is very very similar to a lot of the conflict that we saw within the Empire itself and. For that, I, I have to give the edge to Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I also what I, I really like about The Force Awakens too is I, I like how Kylo Ren is supposed to be the Darth Vader with the mask and everything like that, but he can never. It, he, it always seems like he's in Vader's shadow. Like he can't get past his that legacy as much as he wants to. He's like a poor man's Darth Vader. And where Vader was able to keep himself cool, calm, and collected, even though he would get violent, Kylo Ren was like a like a screaming child, <laughs> you know, in the movie, slashing consoles and you know just, just having temper tantrums. So it, it it made it it was very different. There was he wasn't a cloned copy, basically. Of they weren't just trying to create another Darth Vader. They tried right. to show somebody who was trying to was trying to be something that maybe deep down he really wasn't, you know, and that made for an, an interesting twist in the villainy. I felt. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, that's kind of where Chris and I stand. We both, you know, feel that the force awakens was the better relaunch of the franchise. Let us know, you know, by reaching out to us on social media, what you liked better and, you know, and tell us why you liked it better. 
uh, once this episode launches, we'll have a post on our Twitter and a post on our Facebook page where you can interact with us and, and sound off and voice your opinion and tell us if you thought we were right, if we were wrong. Absolutely. Well, I think this is a fun one. I enjoyed being able to compare and contrast the two movies. That was certainly interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I had a great time, as always, Chris, and I look forward to our next discussion. You too. Until the next time, everybody, live long and prosper. And may the Force be with you. If you'd like to reach out to the show on Twitter, you can find us at Logs and Lightsabers Pod, all spelled out. If you go on Facebook, search for Logs and Lightsabers Pod. Or if you want to email the show, you can reach us at logslightsaberspod at gmail.com. If you'd like to reach out to me personally, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook by searching at Just a Disney Geek. How about you, Chris? You can find me on Twitter. Just go to Twitter, type in at Chris Stow, S-T-O-U-G-H-1. You can also find me on Twitter and YouTube. I have a YouTube channel called Pittsburgh's Trek Chat. On Twitter, you can go to at PGH Trek Chat. You'll find me there. On YouTube, just type in Pittsburgh's Trek Chat. That'll take you directly to my channel. My email that you can use also to get in touch with me is Christopher Stow, S-T-O-U-G-H-L-S-W at gmail.com. Great. And then also, if you'd like to connect with Geek News Now, the uh, the network on which you found this podcast, you can reach out to them on Twitter at GNN underscore home. Facebook, just search for Geek News Now. Or if you'd like to connect with GNN on their website, it's www.geeknewsnow.net. We'd appreciate any and all feedback that you're willing to provide. Just reach out to us on any of those social network contact points and tell us what you think, whether that's suggestions for new episodes, what you liked about an episode, or what we can improve upon. We want to hear it. If you're an Apple Podcast user, our show and the entire GNN network would appreciate a five-star rating and review. But it really is the best way to help our show reach more listeners and make us more visible to others. If you're not an Apple Podcast user, you can also help the show by subscribing to the feed which will make sure you never miss an episode of this or any other show on the network. In exchange for your feedback and reviews, we would like to offer you some discounts from a couple partnerships that Geek News Now has. For the pen and paper RPG fans, we have a great offer from Metallic Dice Games. You can use the code GNN to take 10% off your entire order, including items that are already on sale. Go to MetallicDiceGames.com and shop for your RPG gaming needs. Secondly, if you have extra room in your closet or drawers for more geeky t-shirts, Ripped Apparel is offering 10% off on their site, except for the daily shirts. That promo code is GNN10. Their website is riptapparel.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Captain's Logs and Lightsabers. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Live long and prosper, everyone. <laughs>